This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is March 10th, 2022, and this is episode 280. Bushfield. And I'm Stuart Prest. Thanks, Stuart, for pinch hitting for Scott, who is sick this week. You've just become our go-to backup host. That's right, the emergency inflatable host available on request. On today's show, we're going to have you help us go through the championship of the greatest BC Premier Bracket. Actually, we have two special guests who we'll throw it over to to tee that up. And then we check in on the usual roundup of COVID, the conservative leadership race, and the war. All the usual hits. Thanks to everyone who contributes to the show each month or annually. You can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast. Quickly then to get into the greatest BC Premier bracket, it's no surprise that WAC Bennett beat Boss Johnson 26 to 8. I apologize to our voters on Twitter. I didn't actually type out Boss Johnson's entire name. It just said Boss versus WAC Bennett, but I didn't care to fix it because I didn't think it was going to be close. So maybe I swung this one in Wacky's favor, but it made it easier to set up this finale, which is where it was always going to go, the championship between WAC Bennett and Dave Barrett. But to properly tee this finale up, I wanted to do something a little bit different. I've talked about, and Scott and I have talked about, all the different premiers over the past several months of this challenge. But to really make the end special, and I had to assume WAC Bennett was going to win, if there had been a last-minute surge for Boss Johnson, it really would have thrown off this episode. But thankfully, our voters didn't do that. I got a couple special guests to make the case for each respective premier, and not just any guests, but like possibly preeminent authorities on these two premiers. So first, we'll start with WAC Bennett. I want to introduce David J. Mitchell, the former MLA for West Vancouver Garibaldi. He was elected as a BC Liberal, but he actually left the party to sit as an independent on a split over the Charlatan Accord and the constitutional questions of the day. But before he got into politics, he authored a book entitled W.A.C. Bennett and the Rise of British Columbia, which is a biography based on extensive interviews he did with W.A.C. Bennett himself. Mitchell joined me earlier today from Calgary. I'll throw it over to that. All right, David Mitchell, why is W.A.C. Bennett the greatest premier in British Columbia history? It goes without saying, and I don't really believe there's actually a contest. If you look at the long list of premiers of the province of British Columbia. Not only was W.A.C. Bennett by far the longest serving premier, 20 years, seven consecutive election victories. He was premier for what amounts to an entire generation of British Columbians. You could have started school in grade one or kindergarten and W.A.C. Bennett was your premier gone through elementary school, gone through high school, gone to university and gotten a degree, and he was still the premier after all those years. It's it's kind of amazing. We don't have that kind of political longevity today. But not only was he the longest serving premier, he had the greatest sustained impact as well of any premier, in part because of his singular vision for economic development, opening up the province, developing the interior of British Columbia in particular, but for how he used government as a tool for development of BC in the post-war era, there was nothing like it in any other part of the country. He, um, he had a singular vision. He was a conservative, fiscal conservative, 20 consecutive balanced budgets. It's extraordinary to think about that today. But he also used government as an active agent of development, creating corporations like BC Hydro, BC Ferries and numerous others to aggressively open up the province to economic development. There's no doubt there were many controversies over those two decades that he served as Premier, and that's what makes him stronger as a survivor for 20 years. There's no question that by far he was the greatest Premier in British Columbia's history to date. How would you defend him against kind of the present bias where people would look back and say, It wasn't just controversies, but he 
ran over the rights of Indigenous people, for example. Maybe he didn't pay enough attention to human rights and some of these more social issues. I think criticisms based upon our perspective today, looking back to that period from the 1950s to the 1970s, criticisms based upon our current preferences and biases are legitimate. They really are. But the fact that he sustained opposition from strong opposition leaders, Harold Winch, Bob Strachan, Tom Berger, the list of extremely impressive opponents, there was no contest. 1969 was supposed to be the election that the NDP would finally win because uh, W.A.C. Bennett had been in power for so long, and he won his greatest majority ever. So the criticisms from today's perspective could be valid and uh, should be considered, I suppose. But considering the times, the 1950s, the 1960s, the pent-up urge to develop the province economically and otherwise, there's no doubt that whether you love him or loathe him, he was an impactful premier. I don't think anyone could deny he's impactful in many ways. I guess the question becomes, did he do so in a way that brought everyone forward. Like one of the big challenges of the time was labor unrest. Was he, you know, the friend of the working person or was he the friend of capital? Yeah, Uh, those are good questions and they're ideological questions ultimately. Bennett was interesting in in the sense that he defied ideology. He was conservative, pro-development, and wasn't sensitive to many of the kinds of issues that we are much more aware of today. Indigenous issues, labor issues like you like you've mentioned but the point is he was supported by the majority of british columbians including workers including small town british columbians he was never the the preferred candidate of the corporate world big business always opposed him and would like to have gotten him out of office because he taxed them and was more a main street small town supporter but he was supported by people who maybe didn't even ever admit to supporting him and the social credit government of those days. Did they hold their noses and vote for him time and time again? Seven consecutive elections, perhaps. But he had the support of the majority of the province, and that's hard to argue against. Rod Mickleborough, tell me why Dave Barrett was the greatest premier in BC history. There's good competition t- between Dave Barrett and, and W.A.C. Bennett, of course. Uh, both were populists. Both made significant contributions to B.C. But W.A.C. Bennett was in power for 20 years. And at the end of his 20 years, B.C. was, you could argue, was still in many ways stuck in the 1950s. There were so many gaps in social programs and individual rights and in areas that other provinces had long ago moved on and, and become more modern. There was no Hansard. Can you imagine that? No Hansard. No question period. Six-week sessions. W.A.C. Bennett just decided everything for everybody. And so after 20 years, this was in part his legacy. Dave Barrett came in 1972, shocked people when the NDP won their sweeping majority, and he brought B.C. into the modern era. He changed the face of of the province, and he did it in 39 months. You can't even imagine that the glacial space that governments move today, that Barrett, the Barrett government did so much in such a short period of time. It just went on and on in so many different areas. There was so much to do, and they decided to do it all at once. He, was famous, he famously said at their first cabinet meeting, are we here for a long time or a good time? In other words, are we going to be pragmatic and maybe win a lot of different uh, elections over the years, or are we going to change, make the changes that were needed? And they opted for the good time. And the changes that they brought in, and many of them are still are with us still, were breathtaking. I can go through some of them, the major ones, but that was gen- the gist of why Dave Barrett really was the greatest uh, premier in BC history. He just changed the face of the province and he did it in an enormously short period of time. Do you think someone couldn't just come back and say, though, if he was so great, why did electors, why did the British Columbian electorate turf him after three years? And in a way, they didn't turf him. Barrett came in 1972 because there was a split in the traditional 
anti-socialist vote that W.A.C. Bennett, cleverly a master politician, had marshaled in election after election. They were known as 10-second Socrates. People would go in there and say, God, I don't like W.A.C. Bennett, and, but they sure don't want those socialists in. And they'd hold their nose and vote for Bennett. And then they'd come out and say, I sure don't like that W.A.C. Bennett. And that's what they were, why they were known as 10-second Socrates. In 1972, the wheels fell off and the Liberals and the Conservative parties got 29% of the vote. So in other words, the right-wing vote was split. And Dave Barrett rode to victory, a huge victory, with 38-39% of the popular vote. In 1975, that same coalition, the anti-NDP coalition, came back together and Barrett, he's still got the same popular, the same percentage of the popular vote, 38, 39%, but he got trampled in the number of seats. So yes, he was certainly voted out, but it's not like there was this massive turn against him. People didn't want an NDP government. And again, he held his share of the popular vote in spite of all the radical changes that he brought in. And I might add, I, I'm going on a bit too much here, but in the, the proof of the pudding really is in the 1970, uh, 1979 election. Bill Bennett rode to power. They had four years of Bill Bennett. And in the 1979 election, so they could compare the Barrett government with the Bill Bennett government. And Dave Barrett almost stole that election. People look back on his 39 months in office and say they brought in a lot of good things. They did a lot of good things. Maybe Dave wasn't that bad a premier after all. And he, he, in that election, he got the highest percentage, first or second anyway, in the history of the NDP in BC. He almost stole the election, which showed that a lot of people had forgiven Dave Barrett and thought that was a pretty good government after all. And they look back on it with fondness. And I thought that election was very interesting because it showed that people didn't retain that initial hostility to the bear, <coughs> excuse me, to the bear government. They looked back and reflected and said, that was a pretty goddamn good government. Just in the last minute here, what are the top two accomplishments? Go for it. I want to say one thing about the Barrett government. Yeah, sure. Uh, and you can cut me out if you like, but I'd like to say one thing more about the Barrett government. There are so many things they did that are with us still, ICBC, Provincial Ambulance, or all that sort of stuff. But the single greatest legacy of the Barrett government was the Agricultural Land Reserve. With a stroke of a pen, they froze every bit of agricultural land in the province. And every time I, I come in and, and fly over the lower mainland and I see all that farmland, instead of huge condominium towers, which the urban sprawl that have bedeviled so many urban areas across North America, I say thank you to Dave Barrett because it changed BC and it was a tremendously popular and nobody changes the agricultural land reserve without a huge fight. And they left us that legacy, his greatest legacy, one of the greatest legacies any government has ever left this province. Thank you so much for making your case, Rod. So there you have the cases for the two premiers. You haven't actually heard those interviews, Stuart, but do you have any sense of, you know, how this has shaped up? Like, what are your feelings on Bennett versus Barrett? I think this is the the match we've all been waiting for. These are, in a sense, they capture or they distill the, the two competing visions of of the province from the 20th century and the, the idea of, of the province as a wacky political place that tends to veer from the center to the right and back again, and the province as a hotbed of, uh, of labor and left-of-center activism trying to push uh, the boundaries in terms of what's possible for governments in Canada in in that the sort of leftward direction. And so there are two premiers who very clearly left their stamp on on the province in different ways. And I think it's a nice snapshot of that, that idea of where the province came from out of the 20th century. And we don't have the exact uh, replica of, of this debate in, in the 20th century. 21st century, but but we still do have this idea of two very different visions of, of the province uh, as a center versus a left of center province. And so this is a defining debate. And I think uh, it'll be interesting to see who comes out on top. And I'm just really glad that the hyper overt racists of the earlier eras, the Omorta Cosmos and everyone from his era didn't make it this far because as many problems as Bennett had, he at least wasn't, well, 
I'm sure we could find in the historical record lots of racism. It feels less bad than the people who are like passing anti-Asian exclusion laws. So among the least racist premiers of the 20th century, is that what we're going for? There you go. If you want to vote for them, go to our Twitter at PoliticosPod. The polls will be open for a week. I want to see lots of votes for this one. I hope it'll be close. Let's jump into our main first segment, Free the Beards. Stuart, are you excited to not wear a mask tomorrow? I'm excited to have an internal debate with myself every time I leave my house about whether I should be masking or not. Is this a moment where I can uh, not deal with it no, or a moment when I still need to mask up? I am within my bubble, one of the very few or my immediate uh, sort of circle of connections who has not contracted COVID myself. I am triple vaxxed. And so it feels like uh, maybe things can get back to normal, but I know everyone is going to have that little conversation with themselves. And, and some have very clearly made up their minds and they're waiting for uh, broad permission to do away with a mask. And, and some are dreading this moment when they're going to feel a little less safe because we are going to be a little more exposed to the, the potential of exposure to, to cases of the virus going forward. And we are a little bit more on our own now and everyone's going to have to make up their mind either on a blanket decision or on a case-by-case basis. And I feel like I'm going to be somewhere in that middle middle zone. Yeah, the announcement came today. It had been teed up that we were going to see some announcement from Dr. Henry today and Adrian Dix, the health minister, on loosening restrictions. I don't know how many people were expecting the mask mandate to go away tomorrow, but that's what we got Friday as you're listening to this. With the other major plank of this being that the vaccine card, the vaccine passports, will be ditched by April 8th, if not possibly sooner. There were a couple other tweaks like faith gatherings can now go to 100% capacity and kids can go to overnight camp. So I guess you can send your kids off this weekend. <laughs> the good news for anyone who's looking to, to get a little quiet time in, in their houses, but the vaccine passport at the end of, of the use of the vaccine card is is a little bit surprising because that seemed like a, a pretty effective tool that had very little in the way of... of na- it, it was a fairly inoffensive type of, of device just to to make it clear for those who are less comfortable going out of doors that they are going to be in an environment where they're going to be at least surrounded by those who are, are, are vaccinated and going to be a little less uh, likely to have significant cases, all those things we associate with vaccination, just to, to have rolled out this policy and simply to do away with it. Seems pretty abrupt, to be honest. Yeah, the province has said that individual organizations and businesses can choose to continue requiring masks within their premises or continue the vaccine card within their premises. And we're seeing a couple make that kind of choice, like UBC said this afternoon that they are going to require masks until the end of the semester. It'll be interesting to watch other places. I can't imagine many businesses are going to take that step as much as it seems easy enough to say, all right, we'll keep doing this and we'll get the really pro-vax crowd in. It's also still an onerous step on your staff. And then you're going to get that small, very vocal minority who will be extra mad if you have it there. And right. why would you invite that controversy on your business? To clarify, it is with the power of the state behind it, it is a fairly straightforward policy to enforce. But the moment that it comes down to the business, you're putting the entire onus on the business for insisting on that policy. And more to the point, you're putting the real responsibility on someone who's probably not making much more than minimum wage working at the, the front of house to to deal with the who, whoever happens to come in and, and be mad about the policy chosen by the business. We are going to be in, in a space for a while where some people are, are, are just going to be left having to make some difficult choices about whether they're ready to re-enter into the environment. I think it we seem like we've been moving towards this for some time. In some ways, the kinds of regulations that were in place were somewhat arbitrary. So walking into restaurants for those who were comfortable going to restaurants to wear a mask to get to the table and then you take their, your mask off. It was a bit of sort of vaccine or not vaccine sorry a uh, covid theater and covid security theater and so uh, at least uh, we don't have some of the, some of that 
silliness, but at the same time, it's it's a wide open world now, and it leads to the suspicion or what the word might be, but wondering whether we're just going to this strategy now because, as always, the hospital capacity can manage it. So that we've seen cases come down fairly dramatically in the last number of weeks as this last Omicron wave has subsided, but I would not be surprised at all to see a new wave cresting in its place as we open things wide open in this regard. And the the calculation is simply that that we can manage that. And as additional cases spread through the the population, that that does create these instances of health risk. It does overall tend to create a population that is ever more exposed to COVID. So I guess that's the the calculation we're making now, that, that we have a high enough vaccination rate and a high enough exposure rate already that the marginal exposures that will result will do uh, a certain amount of harm, but manageable harm. Yeah, this is always interesting to me. I was also looking earlier today at what is the rest of the country doing? Because I feel like the overwhelming number of stories that I've been reading in the media recently have been like everywhere in Canada is dropping their mask mandates. They're all gone. BC is like the last standout. It was a perception I had. It's not true. Everywhere is dropping them, but the timelines are different. Alberta and Saskatchewan have already dropped theirs as of March 1st. BC is now the third province to actually have no mask mandate. New Brunswick and Newfoundland are dropping theirs on the 14th, Manitoba on the 15th. I think Manitoba already dropped its vaccine card, though, which seems like the wrong order to do it. Ontario announced that they're dropping their masks, but that's not until March 21st, similar to Nova Scotia. Quebec has said they are going to talk about a timeline soon. So for the foreseeable future, Quebec, you still have to mask. And PEI, there's no consideration of it yet. They're moving to their step two on March 17th, but that doesn't do anything to masks. And step three of their reopen plan will be on or before April 7th. So if you really want to be among a population that is required to wear masks in public, go to Quebec or the Prince Edward Island. Yeah, there's uh, probably uh, cheaper housing in both places than around here as well. (laughs) It does, the the timing of the announcement, just quickly, it it does uh, surprise a little bit, as you were mentioning, that Ontario had an announcement of an impending change to their their mask policy, and we see that in in a number of other provinces. The BC seems to really heighten to the max something that I've I've complained on this very podcast before, which is the seeming lack of a long-term expectation or planning process made available to the population so that they can figure out what's going on. So the way in which we just have these arbitrary changes in policies so that you need to stay home for 10 days. No, actually, it's five days, five days is fine, and then you need to wear a mask. And actually, no, it's suddenly not uh, a problem at all to, to not wear a mask. And just the sudden changes, the arbitrariness of them, I think the, the timing would clearly be intended to try to minimize a period where when it's promised but not yet happening to to avoid that kind of controversy that would result but it it does just tend to uh, reinforce yet again this this arbitrariness that we're just reacting to something that is unseen and then who knows where are we going from here it certainly is going to be that much harder to to reinstate some of these measures without without a fight if things take a a really drastic turn for the worse again i think it really shows how much of a art it is to do public the science of public health. Alberta, I remember at one point on one of its reopening plans set out very clear markers. Once hospitalizations are below this number and cases are below this number a day, we will open this amount. And BC was like, no, we won't do that. And at one point, I think BC was like, if things are trending down and other things are trending up like vaccines and other things are trending up a lot, then we can go to this. And it was very fuzzy. But these are fuzzy calculations because public health is not an exact science. The public health officer and the government work in collaboration to decide what policies they are going to implement based on the science of how do we prevent this vaccine, this virus from spreading, but also just the values that the government and the public health officer want to advance. So they don't want to infringe on perceived freedoms. They don't want to lock down the economy and shut down business or be seen to be doing that necessarily if they don't have to. And so there's a back and forth. And it's never publicly clear which party is on which side of the debate. Like, Bonnie Henry has a position and the government has a position and they're clearly coming to a consensus. And I think that's okay. That's part of the process. It looks a little bit better than in Alberta where it feels like Dr. Hinshaw has been steamrolled by the province on several occasions, and she is just forced to justify 
the government's position rather than here is a position that can be supported by the science and advances the values of the government and the people. But it does leave it open to a lot of debate and frustration because this isn't a government that was elected by every single person. They did get a strong mandate, but that mandate covers a lot of different reasons people voted for them, not necessarily related to how they should take on the pandemic. And so everyone's mad. No one's going to be happy with this. So I think that is that does seem like where we're headed. It's just a, a period of heightened madness or frustration, or maybe both, where those who are, are tired of masks are going to be perhaps a little more in your face. We've seen uh, sporadic reports of that already, of, of people being told to take their mask off. There was the extreme of the governor of Florida telling students to do that, but I don't know if we're going to see that extreme in Canada, but you can imagine it happening. And on, on the flip side, there's a significant contingent of the population that is not really ready for a move like this, who have significant concerns about the safety of themselves and other vulnerable populations in particular with a significant opening up. And then they're going to be very vocal about the need to continue masking in in public spaces. And so it's quite possible that we we continue to see a polarized environment and debate over the subject for for the coming weeks and, and months. And so that's something to look forward to. The places that debate will be hashed out is in the conservative leadership contest where at least two of the candidates so far are extremely critical of COVID restrictions and many others are pretty critical It's been a busy week in the conservative leadership race. We now have official contenders in. Leslin Lewis, Jean Charest have officially launched. Patrick Brown is supposedly launching, I think, in the next couple days. Roman Baber Baber has joined the race and everyone forgot about him, but he is in. He is nuts. Let's, Let's just get the two who I don't think merit much conversation out of the way. Leslin Lewis launched her campaign, her last campaign was pretty strong. She surprised everyone with how well she did. She's still running on a social conservative platform again. Uh, I don't think she's declared whether she's vaccinated or not. And she thinks we need to drop a lot of restrictions. I'm hoping she gets more criticism from the media or scrutiny, I guess is the better word from the media this time, because it felt like she was treated with kid gloves when really her views are quite antithetical to the vast majority of Canadians, I would hope. Yeah, she treated in some ways as a, a politician who is uh, from a more conservative wing, has can experience from from the western parts of, uh, of the country as well. Her base, her voting base in the last go round, if I recall, was quite clearly in the in the western side of the, of the of the country, particularly in the Prairie provinces, where she she did very well in terms of the absolute number of votes cast. I believe on the first ballot, she actually had the the most votes cast for her. Although given the point system that the, the conservatives used, it didn't translate into the support needed to move forward into the, the latter rounds of, of the of the race that Aaron O'Toole eventually won. If she's able to build on that support, then she could be a real factor here. And I think one of the, just from a horse race perspective, one of the key questions, is she able to garner some significant support among social conservative voters? Or does she come to be seen as the the champion of, of that wing of the party, which is a significant one, never enough to win the leadership outright, but always enough to, to have a significant effect on the outcome. And if she's able to do that, then that effectively is going to stop Pierre Polyev from simply bulldozing everyone else, because I think he's counting on on the support of those voters and others to the right of center, those who might have thought about maybe even voting for the the PPC in a previous election and turning back towards the Conservative as well. But if all those groups really coalesce around Polyev really quickly, and there's, there's some evidence that that might be the case, and this thing could be over quite quickly. Yeah, the other right-wing candidate going up the right is Roman Babber, who's this Ontario MPP. He was in Doug Ford's Progressive Conservatives, but got kicked out when Ford was doing purges of people who were far too openly critical of his COVID strategy from the, why do you have a COVID strategy? And it never really was clear that Doug Ford did have one, but there were conservatives who thought he shouldn't have done anything. And Babber was one of them. So now I guess he wants to bring that People's Party energy to the federal conservative leadership race. And we'll see how that goes. Also out this week was Tasha Carradin. She's throwing her support over to the Jean Charest campaign, which is the big news story of the week as he jumps in. 
on the one side, and then the other story being that Patrick Brown is jumping in amid him clearing, in some ways, his libel lawsuit with CTV by getting them to express regrets over mistakes that were made in the reporting, but not actually apologizing to him and not retracting the story that said women have accused him of sexual misconduct and assault over the years. <laughs> there's a so lot the, going on. <laughs> there's a fair amount going on here. Where we want to begin, perhaps we'll start with the idea of, let's start with Jean Charest, jumping back into the federal politics yet again. And so it's a place he has been previously as a, uh, a member briefly in, in Brian Mulroney's cabinet, I believe, uh, many years ago, and has since uh, been the premier of Quebec for a, a party that is not the Conservative Party and is now back with the, the Conservatives once again. And at the federal level. And so he's very clearly standing for an entirely different conception of what the Conservative Party is and, and could be and should be than, than what someone like uh, Pierre Polyev or, or Leslie Lewis would see the party as representing. Or So that's we're seeing that, that same sort of fault line emerge once more in the Conservative Party. Is it a party of more social conservative, populist conservative, the, the sorts of combination of the libertarian and uh, a certain expression of Canadian identity that is more limited, maybe more skeptical even of, of the way in which Canada embraces the, uh, diverse uh, cultures and so on, uh, and a particular view of conservatism that Charest is really pushing against. And in this sense, he's he seems to be becoming trying to position himself, he and Patrick Brown, both trying to position themselves as the potential champions for this alternative view, this more centrist, moderate view of conservatism. It was the same version that Aaron O'Toole as leader was championing, but the opposite of the version that Aaron O'Toole as leadership candidate was championing. And so this all gets quite confusing quite quickly. But the fundamental end result is you have a core of conservative voters who seem to be on the opposite sides of all sorts of questions from the rest of the country on issues like action on COVID earlier in, in this year and previous year, in the last two years on things like gun control. It shows up very clearly. There's a on opposite sides of that debate on um on issues like climate change, the, the need for action on climate change, the acceptance of climate change as being human cause and a threat to to our continued prosperity. On all these issues, there is a sort of uh, a hardcore group of conservatives on the, the right of the party. And then there is this more moderate wing, which tends to see all of those issues more in line with the way the rest of the country does. And it's it's going to be interesting to see either whether either one of those two can emerge as a champion. They seem to have uh, some agreement that that either one or the other will, will push forward if they start to get momentum, and whether it's going to be enough to make any noise. Given the uh, vigor with which Aaron O'Toole was expelled from the leadership, I, I have my doubts that moderate can win this party, but we shall see. Yeah, they'll need to sign up a lot of people very fast. And that's always a challenge, especially like Patrick Brown doesn't start with very big name recognition. None of the candidates really have that much name recognition from the polling that's been released so far. And the guy who does, Jean Charest, he's really disliked in his own province. Abacus released a poll that shows in Quebec, 47% of respondents, and this is all voters, not just conservative members or conservative supporters, but 47% have a negative view of him compared to 20% positive and 22% who are neutral. Only 12% of Quebecers didn't know him. And so that's not a good sign for trying to build a national campaign when like, where you should be strongest is probably where you're weakest. It's one of those truisms of Canadian politics that it's very hard to move from the premiership of a province to 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 the federal ring and then to to move into the leadership of a party and, and compete for a prime minister. It's just something we don't see happen. And this may be why that by the time you're done being premier of a province, your province is done being premier with you, uh, done with you being premier, done uh, wants nothing to do with you for a while. And so that's it's hard to build when your base is tired of you. And uh, I think that is a, a part of the, the cycle of, of politics that can play a role here. It's also, and, and this does raise some questions about 
why is Jean Jaurès doing this? Where once you are leader of a province, you are effectively a miniature prime minister. The premier of province is a very powerful role within the ambit of the, the province itself. In many ways, you're you're closer to everyday lives and affecting everyday lives than the prime minister. Where the the, the federal role is in many of the most important areas of governance, a supportive one. And so, I think for, for many leaders, once they are ensconced in that that provincial uh, level, they don't necessarily look to to move to the more uncertain world that is federal politics. And Jean Charest has been Premier of Quebec. He's done a lot of things. And so it, it is interesting that he, he's back here once again. And perhaps a, a glutton for punishment, perhaps he has a, a deep abiding need to, and will to serve the, the population of Canada. But, but here he is once again. Hey, he's only 63. He's not of retirement age yet. So despite his long CV, he still has some time at the can. But if we're going to say that the Premier has a big effect on the day-to-day lives, then by that argument, Patrick Brown should stay mayor of Brampton because the mayor's got a ton of effect on your garbage collection and your streets being plowed and all of those things that really make a difference to can you get to work and throw out the trash. But it's been an interesting week. I don't think we need to get into the details of his settlement with CTV as much as it is seen publicly. I think Canada Land did a pretty good dig on that as Jesse Brown has been covering these kind of stories for quite a while. But I find the timing just so clearly planned as there's this baggage hanging over him, right? This sexual assault allegation is not a thing you want to keep dealing with if you're running to be leader of a party that could form government. And so it's a convenient settlement is how I'm viewing it. It's certainly it's convenient, and then I I don't know enough about the the details of, of the circumstances to to say whether what what merit the case has. I do I do think it's possible for someone to be to be not technically a follow of laws and still be potentially doing things that were, were not super great. And and I think this is something the, an element of his story that will continue to follow him. And again, because I don't know enough of the details to say whether that's fairly or not, but I think. Going back to to when he left uh, the leadership of the the Progressive Conservative Party in in um, in Ontario, it was a it was a decisive move, and his own fellow support fellow supporters with within his party were adamant that it was time for him to go. And so it is interesting that he has been gotten to a point where he feels like he has uh, sufficiently rehabilitated his reputation that he can make a run for the leadership. But I can expect that he may be in for some tough questions even so about this. I don't think it goes away just because of the settlement with CTV. So amid all of these machinations as the candidates line up, we have a Leger poll released a couple days ago of 1600 conservative voters who said who would make the best conservative leader and Pierre Polyev is sitting well ahead the others at 41% and Jean Charest has 10. Peter McKay has nine. Patrick Brown at three and Leslie Lewis at two and another 33% unsure. And that makes it feel like more of a coronation like Voters aren't necessarily equivalent to members, but a short race will be really hard for any of the other candidates here to really turn this around. Yeah, he's clearly the established name. He's the one who's currently in the ring. He's currently scoring points. There is, among many more progressive Canadians, Pierre Polyevre is is deeply disliked. He tends to be, to places that, what can we say, he places emphasis on the, the tactics of politics and is very good at generating sound clips and news bites and, and using platforms like Twitter to to gain attention uh, on issues of the day that really get under the liberal skin. He's good at that. And so if that's one of the things that you look in, look for in your conservative leader, leader the ability to make waves and to and to really rile up the opposition, then that is going to be a point in his favor. He has also been able to pick an issue and stick with it and and to really make it. He's one of the main reasons we are, or major reasons we're talking about inflation, aside from the fact that inflation is going up. Aside from really the fact to- gas is 209.9 at the nearby station. I have an electric car, right. so I don't pay it, but I see it and I laugh. Yes. But he has brought it into the political conversation, and and he was doing that 
prior to the uh, the price of gas shooting up. And so it creates a, a set of facts where even if the precise mechanisms that are driving inflation and driving the price of gas are largely out of, and not entirely, but but largely out of the the control of the federal uh, Liberal Party to be able to build a coherent argument regarding the lack of affordability. That is something that resonates with voters, and he has been banging that drum for for months now. And and sometimes he does so on a, a solid factual basis. Sometimes he's attacking the the central bank of. Canada over its monetary policy, which uh, seems to be less on point, and yet the consistency of the message is politically effective. And I think he is somebody who will give the the Liberals some difficulties if he were to win the leadership, just because of the, that kind of ability of of generating a, a message and then staying on it. And the fact that he has that commanding lead suggests that we may well be looking at a Justin Trudeau versus Pierre Polyev election in our, our not too distant future. Of course, we don't want to coronate him just yet. He still has to win the votes, but that seems to be the way this thing is tilting so far. Hey, we could be looking at a Christian Freeland versus Pierre Polyev debate soon enough, but before I use that to segue to our next segment, I wanted to ask you a more theoretical question on the race since I have you here and you're a political scientist. And one thing we've probably observed with you know, the switch to this one member, one vote style of leadership race that the conservatives and every party now pretty much has where even if it's not one member, one equal vote, it's the members who are directly voting rather than in the past where you would have delegates nominated from constituency associations and sent to a convention and you'd see these dramatic shifts as they negotiated who should be leader. Is that changes the dynamics of the leadership race. You don't have people trying to broker a broad tent. You have people trying to energize a small base to win a party. And ha- has the Conservative Party kind of doomed themselves used by going down this route? And I don't know that there's a way out of going from because it looks anti-democratic to say you're going to bring the delegate system back. But are they doomed because of this? I don't know if they're doomed, but it certainly colors the the way in which the the race is playing out. So there is no perfect way to to choose the leader of a party. You can poke holes in, in what whatever great idea somebody has. There's going to be a problem with it. In politics and the institutional design is all about trade offs. It's what problems do you want to live with, and so when you have uh, leadership can, uh, selection by delegation, you're going to have more of the elites of the party. So. While there can be a problem of, of base motivation with a, a one-member, one-vote system or the, the modified version the Conservatives use, by moving to a delegate system, you're not necessarily moving away from the the most fervent believers in conservatism. You're just focusing on the, the more elite faction of the party. And so what it really does is it changes the the mechanism of the race. So rather than trying to build a network of supporters among the, the most active members of the party who are likely to show up to, at these these delegated conventions, you're trying to sign up memberships, you're trying to fire up an enthusiastic base beyond the, the current members of the party to get to more to, to sign up and to the, to start to contribute to the party. And so it's, it is, instead of, of, of motivating an elites of the party or near, near elites of the party, you're, you're motivating the base of, of voters. And, and so it's it's a different kind of contest. I don't know if it's a better measure of what you'll actually do as prime minister either. I don't know if either one of those campaigns is an extremely good measurement of what you would be able to do as prime minister. But one of the one of the challenges of the the move to a convention where it's a one member one vote is it it tends to give, if anything, leaders more power in that you have a vote of a group that only exists for the purposes of electing that leader, and then it disperses. And that's true of any kind of convention, but at least with a delegated convention, it is this network of connected members of a party. And so there is a, there, it is possible to start to, to pull together a, a critical mass of critical voices within the party and say, it's time for you to go. When it is this idea of a, a membership that needs to come uh, together to, to select the leader, and then they, they disappear up until an extreme revolt of the kind we saw against Aaron O'Toole, the leader just exists as the, uh, the the chief of the party. And so we saw in, uh, prior to the, the loss of the election, uh, O'Toole was able to drag the party along uh, very much against its inclinations. The leader has a tremendous amount of power to to shape the message of the party. And we see that in, it's not just a conservative thing. We see that in, in all parties. So I think 
either one of those, you can end up with an echo chamber effect where there's just a, it's just a different section of the party that's talking to itself. And in this case, it's a bigger conversation among voters more broadly, but it isn't a, a building up of that kind of network that we used to see. It is much more of a, a targeted messaging. So you may see a broader role for things like social media, some living room chats, that, that kind of thing, and the barbecue circuit, those may be possible now again, but but it tends to be somewhere more of a hybrid between appealing to an electorate and, and appealing to uh, party faith. Something to keep uh, an eye on as these political institutions continue to evolve. I know we had a little chat in the Slack with some of the other patrons about this poll that Mario Canseco put out about BC politics and should elections BC take over the leadership races of political parties. And there are strong feelings on that because on the one hand, sometimes they go really badly and there's you know accusations of fraud and corruption in the process and maybe there should be oversight over that but on the other hand you don't want to stymie the democratic process and the ability of these things to evolve and to change and to try different things and ultimately parties are responsible to their members and in the end to the voters at the election and so in a theoretical sense we parties exist to to compete to control the the mechanisms of government on behalf of the population and and so essentially to manage the state on behalf of the population if the state is then managing the the parties in in an important sense governing how parties can elect themselves that can become a, a much more closed system if you're at all concerned about the the independence say, of elections bc and i'm not saying we should bc is great but they do amazing work that's where i wanted this conversation to go but there is a certain value to to be to have parties as these independent actors that are competing as a sort of conduits between the state and the population as a way to to manage the relationship between the, those two entities state embedded in society and having said that there is also this important role that parties play the providing a kind of public good. Like we can't have an effective representative democracy without effective parties. And so if parties are not able to regulate themselves and get their houses in order on behalf of Canadians or on behalf of British Columbians, somebody else has to do it. And we do see that in a variety of ways in, in terms of not just managing, say, leadership contests, but Canadians or voters' privacy, the way it, and their own information. There, there are just very few regulations about how parties handle voters' information. And that's something that parties as the the the, the groups that are take turns being in charge of government have not seen fit to, to pass legislation. And this is a real problem because parties are not always using voters' information as they should necessarily. And so it is an area that probably should be regulated, but you still run up against that same kind of argument where parties want to remain the, these independent organizations, uh, independent of state action. People should submit their thoughts and concerns to the BC Legislature Committee since we've gotten to this end of the discussion that is currently studying the Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act and recommending amendments to it, even though it was just amended recently. But let's jump from the theoretical politic to the real politic across the seas in Europe right now. And I don't think we have time to get into all of the latest. I don't think either of us have particularly insightful thoughts on how Ukraine and Russia and the war is going. But I want to focus in on the political questions around like one specific event. This is the tweet from yesterday by CBC senior parliamentary reporter Travis Donraj, who tweeted, Deputy PM Christian Freeland and Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie clearly did not like my question. Why is Justin Trudeau in Europe on the taxpayer dime? Well, there are pressing domestic issues he could be dealing with at home. Here's the exchange. And the actual exchange and the question he asks is a little less harsh or direct than that. He says, why are, why is the prime minister, the deputy prime minister slash finance minister and foreign affairs minister all in Europe all for a week when there are, COVID is still ongoing, there are many other domestic issues. Do you all need to be here continually? And Christian Freeland gets criticism from this journalist for being a bit snippy in the start of her answer, where she implies, why are you even asking this? course we're here this is an important war and then eventually gets into the substantive answer of the value of face-to-face meetings what was your take on this exchange as it played out and it's been seen by 
oh, 2,000 people retweeted it, and another 2,000 people quote tweeted it. So it was a quite controversial tweet. It was. It was fascinating. It was, it was something for very easy for a lot of people to get angry about. Something about the, the framing of the question and the, the framing of the response. There was something for everyone to hate, basically. I think... It, my first reaction was this was an extraordinarily Canadian exchange. It just I assumed there was going to be a follow-up about is it really worth putting all that money into 24 Sussex because isn't there a health crisis that we need to invest in? And, this, and so my own priors on this is that it is good governance is worth paying for. So elections are expensive. They can cost a half billion dollars. That, that's it, If that is what it costs to ensure that we are governing ourselves, then that's money worth paying for. Um, paying for an official residence that the that can be resided in by the the prime minister, that's probably worth paying for. Uh, sending ministers overseas to talk about a, a major uh, international crisis, I'm probably not going to focus on, on the dimes. I'm not going to focus on the costs of that, that trip. I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask, why is this so important? Why are you all here? And so I think the, the overall thrust of the question is a good one. <laughs> Explain why you're here. Explain to Canadians, why is this so important? And then, again, the answer was strangely standoffish as well, where the, the immediate re- reaction you would you think my, could be, well, I'm glad you asked that question. Let me tell you exactly how important this is. This is a crucial thing. A moment for Canadians are uh, involved in this at, at, at multiple levels. We are exercising leadership on the world stage, which is actually true by all accounts. Uh, Christopher Freeland in particular and the Canadian government uh, more broadly has been playing a leadership role in trying to nudge allies to, to do things like in place restrictions on Russia's access to central bank reserves and, and things like that. So doing some arm twisting and really trying to move the international community towards a stronger consensus of action against Russia. So there's all kinds of reasons you can talk about. This is why we're here. This is why we need to be here. We need to be part of this action. But but don't take it out on the reporter. Just you know, do that classic pivot. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question. It gives me an opportunity to talk about why what I'm doing here is so important and can't be done in any other way. I think uh, it does suggest that there's a, a, a suspicion of politics in Canada that we will never fully get over. It does suggest that we sometimes are uh, a little too careful and are asking of questions. It's good to ask questions of leaders. And that's okay. And and I think our, our leaders sometimes uh, are unused to, to facing questions that, that they might, if they took a second to, to think about, could answer in a, in a more congenial sort of way. And, and there are other elements of the answer that were really strong. But but this idea of, of pushing back against the question, I think, is one that, particularly if, uh, if Christopher Freeland is looking to run for the leadership of the, the Liberal Party once uh, Justin Trudeau, if and when he ever decides to step down, she's going to she's going to face those kinds of questions all the time. She's going to face questions that are annoying as hell, and so you're going to have to figure out a way to to answer them in a way that it doesn't sound like you're annoyed as hell. Yeah, I find the reactions to this and the like stark polarizing reactions. You're either like a Christopher Freeland stand, and this question was offensive, and how dare it even be asked? Or there are people who are like standing up for the journalist and saying there is a value to ask this. Why did she have to be so rude to him? And I think a lot of it started with just how he framed the tweet, which read to me, I was like, who is this journalist? He's blue check. I'm assuming he's from at least like CTV, if not a actual right wing, like maybe he's rebel news or something. No, CBC. That surprised me when he's using phrases like taxpayer dime. He does say in a follow-up cheat tweet that he takes responsibility for his clumsily worded tweet. He does still think there are legit questions like you were saying to help answer the question of what does it do to substantially address the Ukrainian situation. The Freeland thing is really interesting, though, and I'm really interested to watch the future of her career, particularly if she does go for and become leader of the Liberal Party and Prime Minister. Because there's been a few times, like, she's been asked about her family lineage or some of these, or the red and black flag that she was caught holding, and She'll switch to very defensive answers very quick, very dismissive answers. This is Russian disinformation. How dare you ask these questions? And people love her for it. There are a lot of people who love her for it. And I, and there are a lot of people who get very angry at her for that approach. And that polarization, I think she might be smart enough to be using. And this might be intentional. And I think that may not have worked 10, 20 years ago, but she may actually be playing it up as, there's always been this element of Justin Trudeau who will lean into the let's polarize Canadians and use that as a like liberal wedge to play culture war issues. 
And I think she may be even better at it. And that worries me for the future of this country. Yeah, we've seen the Liberal Party under, it's a good point, we've seen the Liberal Party under Trudeau essentially evolve from, uh, we're going to buy a pipeline, we're going to try to win over Alberta voters to, forget those guys, we're we're never going to convince them, so we're just going to push this carbon tax through, we're going to do what we want to do, and, and we're going to, to mask up, and we're going we're to try to take care of business as much as we can, and uh, those that sort of attack the hater sort of approach, and that that is possible that there there is uh, that underlying approach here, and, and there's can be something to be said for simply being uh, assertive in a question and, and not suffering fools gladly. And if, that there are politicians who have carried that off with a great deal of success. And Justin Joe's dad was one of them. And so perhaps that's just, that's going to be the way in which Miss Freeland introduces herself to the, the country when she, even when she's, presumably it's a when she's campaigning to be to the leader of, of the Liberal Party is just a, a hyper-competent actor on the world stage who, and the, the domestic stage, who is, you've got to keep up with and don't try to slow her down because uh, you'll end up looking the worse for it. And that might be fantastically successful. It's going to be really insufferable to watch the Christopher Freeland versus Pierre Polyev debates and even worse is going to be how Twitter just like melts down over who they love slash hate more. Mm-hmm. They just have to disconnect from politics for a few days there. Though I, I, I do think it doesn't actually matter who Pierre Polyev was debating. I think he might have that effect on many people. It's just he's, he's very good at getting under people's skin. That's all I'm going to say. Let's just close off with a couple quick takes. First up, just out today, there we have a death panel in BC. Did you know this? I always assumed. No, I, 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 uh, <laughs> this is a different kind of death panel. So this is the coroner had commissioned a expert panel to look at illicit drug toxicity deaths and come up with some recommendations for the province. And there have been a number of these reports in the past, and they always seem to fall on deaf ears. But what I found, they always seem to fall on deaf ears. But what I found really interesting about this one was the depth of the detail in this report, like, Obviously, the background of this is tragic with the thousands of people we've lost to this crisis and the seeming inability of government to act fast enough on it. But what this report does is it sets deadlines, like very short deadlines to when everything should be achieved. We're talking within months that these recommendations are written more like by May 9th, the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions and Ministry of Health should do this. By this date, the federal government should approve the decriminalization. For its part, the government and the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions, Minister Sheila Malcolmson, patted them on the head for issuing this report, said, yes, we're working on many of things. these things. We've done so much great work trying to address addictions issues in this province and then left it at that and we'll it's unclear if they're actually going to take up the urgency that this lays out i hope they do the the report is clearly written mindful of the toll this issue the the poison drug crisis in the province has taken the the report itself is dedicated to the more than six thousand families and communities that have lost individuals to to the crisis and it, it is a different kind of, of epidemic it is a, a different kind of crisis and it is one that it seems like success, successive governments now have been able to recognize as a crisis but unable to find the bandwidth to to deal with as an emergency where we saw the, the Christie Clark government uh, identifying it as a public health emergency but but then not responding with the, the the type of resources or the scale of resources necessary to deal with it. And of course, it's so much worse now. It seems like the, the Horgan government is is able to acknowledge the, the scope of the crisis, but it, again, does not necessarily seem to have the bandwidth to be able to deal with it on top of the other major priorities it set for itself, which is, which is a true tragedy and an ongoing tragedy. But it's one can hope that this report and the, the stark nature of it and, and perhaps the conversations that it sparked will create pressure for the government to take those recommendations uh, seriously. But And I'm, I'm sadly not terribly optimistic that it's going to lead to a sea change in the government response. Just very quickly, the report calls for a safer drug supply, a 30, 60, 90 day illicit drug toxicity action plan with ongoing monitoring, 
and an evidence-based continuum of care. And I think it's most optimistic that the government has started to address recommendation three. But even there, it says you got to go harder, faster. What I also saw was optimistic is the opposition parties, both the BC Greens, who've been on this for a while, and the BC Liberals have fully endorsed this and said, this should be done. Many will probably question whether the BC Liberals could be trusted with this issue, given they were in government when it was declared a crisis. But I am glad to see them on this issue. We've come out of, in theory, we've come out of a pandemic where we've seen what tools the public health officer has and what they can do with a public health emergency. I don't know if any any public health orders have been issued around addressing the overdose crisis. So maybe it's time to do that. We've seen the, the public health officer with the, the full extent of her powers. and It doesn't seem like we're going to see the, the same kinds of orders. And it's not the same kind of crisis, so you wouldn't expect the identical measures taken, but a similar alacrity with the response. I think one thing that could lead the government to to act more quickly is if there was real gov- political pressure. And, and so it is a, a bit of a problem that the uh, the credibility of the Liberals is not stronger on the issue, where if the, the BC Liberals under Kevin Falcon were able to really plausibly say that this is something that the NDP, the BC NDP, have really failed to act on, elect us and we will take better care of the province's most vulnerable citizens or some of the most uh, vulnerable citizens and we will act on this issue. We're, and, and so we're going to have this monumental pledge to, to to do so and lay it out. But that seems like it's not something that is going to likely emerge out of the Kevin Falcon BC Liberals. And so because the BC NDP is not going to be outflanked on this issue, there's, there isn't that political pressure for them to move. And so the, the tragedy grinds on. And finally, I just want to plant the flag in the story that we will come back to. So we don't need to discuss this, but the trial of Craig James, I think I discussed it with Scott last week, was wrapping up. It is officially over. The judge unsurprisingly reserved judgment and will be delivering the verdict on March 30th. So we have a couple more weeks to wait before we find out whether buying yourself a wood splitter is a crime. He also claimed a $258,000 retirement purchase and and kept some scandalous gifts on his travel expenses. But this is all about the wood splitter. So... This is all about the wood splitter. Uh, maybe we'll get Micah Goldberg back to break down the verdict when it's rendered. We're looking forward to it. <laughs> Indeed we are. Stuart, once again, thank you for joining me on Politicoast. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And that has been Politicoast. Find links to everything we talked about at politicoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Sir Plotnikoff. Politoast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>